What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you are listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful businesses. In today's episode, I'm excited to be talking to the talented, the mysterious AJ. AJ is the creator of a number of very successful projects. Almost a decade ago, he created HTML5 Up. And to this day, if you search for free HTML templates, AJ's site is right there on the first page of Google. And his templates have been downloaded something like 12 million times. He is the creator of Pixelarity, a similar website, but where instead of just giving his templates away for free, he actually sold them for money. And most famously, AJ is the creator of Card, which allows you to easily create a beautiful one-page website for pretty much anything your heart desires. So AJ, welcome to the show. Hey, Corlin. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have you. I've been trying to get you on here for, man, it feels like years at this point. So it really warms my heart to finally have you on here. Yeah. Sorry it took so long. I'm just, I don't know, something about trying to get the right microphone and trying to, who knows, I'm not going to make excuses. I'm here now. Let's get this going. You're a busy guy, AJ. You always have a good excuse. I mean, you are working on CARD. CARD is amazing. In fact, before we jump into things, why don't we give people a sense of the level of CARD success? You're generating something close to $30,000 a month in revenue now. Every month, almost 20,000 new users sign up and create over 40,000 websites using CARD. And what's amazing is that you built this thing by yourself in just a few years as a solo founder and a solo developer. I think that's crazy. Does that seem crazy to you? Are you ever amazed by what you've done? Well, I mean, when you put it that way, it does sound a little bit crazy. But I think when it when you build something like that incrementally, it's easy to look back and say, oh, wow, there was so much that happened there. It's like, well, six months into it, I got this much done. 12 months into it, I got this much done it's not as insurmountable as it seems in retrospect. Yeah, it's kind of like a frog boiling in water. You just don't really notice. You look back two years, two years later and you've got this thing. Uh, and you wonder, you, how, how did you end up in this pot where you're going <laughs> to slowly boil to death? I don't how, know if that was the right analogy happen? to be using Cortland, but we'll go with it. We're getting really morbid really fast here with <laughs> boiling frogs. <laughs> what do you think is the most exciting part of card for you? What gets you out of bed every day? I think just the sheer number of use cases that I just never anticipated. They just came out of nowhere. Every day, it almost seems like I'm finding a new one. To an extent, it's a testament to how I built something that was general purpose enough that it actually is able to be used in a more general way. But at the same time, I guess that thing that gets me out of bed every day is just, where is this thing going to go next? Every day is just a, a new adventure. When I introduced you at the beginning of this episode, I just called you AJ. And it's not because I forgot your last name. It's because I don't actually know your last name. You're anonymous. There are no photos of you online. And as far as I can tell, nobody knows who you really are. You could be an exceptionally skilled elephant named AJ. And none of us would know. That's pretty close. Two questions here. First off, why be anonymous? And second... Is it even possible to remain anonymous over the long term as the founder of a business that's incorporated and has a bank account and has real paying customers? To be honest, I'm not really anonymous. I think it's and it's not even a conscious thing that I'm doing. I sort of grew up in that era where 
you would have like an online handle or username or nickname or something. And that was kind of what you were known by. So I kind of continued doing that even in recent years. And it just kind of stuck with it. And it's not because I'm like a witness protection hiding out or something. It's just, I mean, who really cares? I mean, I guess some people care apparently, but I mean, I certainly don't. And I just, I'm just doing my thing. Despite being not really anonymous, but kind of sort of anonymous, you share a lot of stuff online. You do a lot of building in public. You tweet about your stats. And I know one thing about you is that you used to tweet your revenue stats required sort of regularly. It was something that you sort of made a tradition of, especially in the early days. But recently, you've done a little bit less of that. Why is that? I think past a certain point, uh, you know, in the early days when you're making like 200 bucks a month or 400 bucks a month or, you know, gets up into maybe like the low thousands. It just seems like a good thing to share early on because it's it's the early stages of a project that, you know, may or may not be proven. And then when you get to that point where it's actually making, you know, more than a few hundred dollars, that's good motivation for other people. It's good motivation for you. But once you get past a certain point in the, you know, the five figure range, I just feel it's, at least in my case, I feel it's like a bit douchey. So that's why I don't do it. Yeah, it's weird because it's like nobody shares their salaries with their friends. No one's like, hey, I make $200,000 a year. What do you think about that? Because that would be. Well, I I certainly know some people who are that way. And yeah, it's just a weird thing. There's a lack of self-awareness that comes with that. Yeah. But then there's business where no one really bats an eye if a business shares its revenue. It's not like that crazy for business to share their figures. And now I think we have this weird time period where one person just like sitting in her living room can code an app and be making thousands of dollars a month. And she's kind of one person, that's her job, but she's also a business. And so it's this weird mix where it can feel douchey to share your numbers, but also your business. So like, why not? I think you actually nailed it right there. I think the issue is how close I am to the project. Now, if it were a team effort where I had, you know, two or three other people working on this, sharing numbers for that would feel a little bit more well, a little less douchey, let's just say that. But by me actually being so close to the project, it being a solo project, me sharing how much it's making is effectively like sharing how much I'm making. And that is when it starts to feel a bit too douchey. And so, yeah, I think you nailed it right there. It's just that there's not enough separation between the two. And so they kind of fuse together. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's it's you really just sharing your personal finances at that point. Yeah, and it get it, you know, and that's just strange. But I guess for some people, like they, I think they can contextualize it better than I can, which is why I don't think they feel the way I do. So who knows? So let's come back to that later because I know you have strong opinions as well about sort of separating your work life from your personal life, and I think that's something that everybody treats in a different way. I know I certainly treat it differently than you. So we'll talk about contextualizing your business, but first. Let's talk about some of your earlier projects. In 2012, you started a website called HTML5 Up. What's the story behind how you got started with that and how you came up with the idea? Well, I mean, quite honestly, for years, I had worked on other stuff. I started making good money off it. And then what happens when you get to a certain point, at least the way I was, you start getting complacent. You start not working on things as often as you should. And you inevitably kind of just start sucking at what you do because you just don't, you're not keeping up because why, why should you, you're making good money, you know, why bother? But then, you know, inevitably you hit a peak and then things start to decline and then you sort of wonder, how do I get back into this? So 2012, 
I realized like, well, I'm really far behind. So I need to do something to catch up. So that's when I decided, well, the thing I really need to learn is responsive design, which I had zero experience with, despite it being around for at least like a couple of years at that point, I think. So I figured, why not just jump right into it? Just see what I can make and just put it out there. And if people think it sucks, it sucks. If not, you know, whatever. It's a good way to kind of get public feedback on something entirely new that I have no idea what I'm doing with. But I figured that would be the fastest way for me to learn. So I pretty much started with, actually, if you go to html5up.net right now, scroll to the very bottom, that template is the very first responsive design I've ever done. So yes, it looks incredibly dated, but it got me going. And so over the coming months, I started working on it more, started adding better templates, learning new things. And it just kind of, man, it just kind of grew from there. And I've been more or less keeping up with it ever since. You mentioned that before HTML5 up, you felt that you'd grown complacent, that you'd done the same thing for a long time and you kind of started sucking at it. What was it that you'd been doing for such a long time? Oh, I'd still, I was doing uh, site template stuff for years. I mean, even before I started HTML5 up, I mean, going back as like as far as 2008 or so, it was a different time, different era. There was like a kind of a rising tide of themes and templates that would, you know, if you just put up a site that put out templates of something or themes, you would actually make pretty good money off it. I know a few other people who were kind of doing the same thing around the same time could probably attest to the same experience I had. There was just a lot of money in it. And I made the mistake of thinking that would pretty much be the thing for a long time when it turned out to just be kind of a very quick blip. Okay, so selling themes and templates is not working out. The industry is in decline. You decide to make a transition and you create HTML5 up where you are giving away themes and templates for free. You never put a price tag on it. Why is that? Well, to be honest, I thought the first few things I'd put up there would not be really good enough to charge for. And, I, you know, it felt like it was a good... The Creative Commons license, which is why I put all my stuff out under just felt like a very good way to also kind of spread the word of what this thing is. Because part of that license requires attribution. The attribution I chose is you need to just keep a little link or you know credit to HTML5up in the footer. And that actually had a very good effect of just kind of getting more people to go to HTML5up and see what was there, download stuff, and just continue that effect. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about growth because... I'm looking at HTML5 up right now, and you've got on every one of these templates you've created a free download button and a number after that button that I think is just a representation of how many people have downloaded it. And some of these templates have been downloaded 418,000 times, 547,000 times. How do yeah. you how did you make this website so popular? There's a sea of other HTML5 template websites out there. Why are so many people downloading your templates instead? I, I mean, if I go back and it's one of those things where I can say, well, clearly I did it this way to have this effect. But quite honestly, I didn't plan for it to get this big. I mean, even Pixelarity, that only came about later because I saw there was a demand for it. But it wasn't something I really had like kind of planned out in a premeditated way. Like, well, I'm going to build this and I know how to get all my traffic and all that. If there's one theme for my experience with a lot of this stuff is that I've kind of just fallen into things. And I think there's a there's something to be said about making yourself available to have things like that happen to you. So in the case of HTML5up, 
I didn't overthink it. I was like, well, I'm going to put out some templates with a pretty permissive license. I'm not going to put a bunch of marketing bullshit all over the site. I'm just going to keep it really simple, kind of keep it a little bit more personal this time. You know, maybe people like that better. And then it just went from there. So I don't want to make it sound like it was a calculated decision because it certainly wasn't. It was just, I'm not going to think too much about it this time and see where things go. Was there a point where you realized that some of these things that you were falling into, some of these things that you were deciding on a whim actually turned out to be great ideas and that maybe you could capitalize on them? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what Pixlarity ended up being because there was a point where people were just emailing me saying, hey, is there a way I can pay you so I don't have to credit you? Or people would email me asking questions about how stuff would work. And then I just kind of thought, well, clearly there's a demand here that I didn't know about. So maybe I should build something around that demand, which is exactly what Pixlarity ended up being. Gave people attribution or credit for usage of all the HTML5 up stuff, gave them support, and then even gave them like extra templates that are exclusive to the service. So that was an example of a thing that kind of just came out of nowhere, but you know, I didn't plan for, but I took advantage of it. I just built something around it and it worked out pretty well. I have so many questions here because you made a lot of very interesting decisions. For example, I think many people, when they have a successful website that's getting millions of hits like HTML5 up, if they wanted to launch something off the back of that, they would probably just use the same domain name, the same name, and just add some pricing to that existing website. You created an entirely different brand, an entirely different website. What led you to that decision? I think because HTML5 up seemed like it was just doing well as it was. I mean, you mentioned in in the intro, like if you search for it, it's still pretty high up in the rankings. And part of me was like, well, I don't really want to mess with this too much. If it's working, the whole experience was working pretty well, I suppose. Again, it was one of those things where I just kind of fell into it. I didn't put a whole bunch of marketing speak on there. I didn't have a lot of commercial stuff. There are no ads on it, with the exception of the Pixlarity little banner at the bottom. Yeah, so I just felt like I should leave it as is, build this thing as something separate so I don't pollute the original thing that was doing so well. That makes a lot of sense. It's um, it's as they say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, it was doing great, so why why screw with that? The other decision you made that I think is fascinating is your pricing model for Pixlarity. And so you say you've got 92 templates and someone can download all of them in one go for just $19. How'd you decide on that? Honestly, I can't really remember. I mean, it just felt like the right price at the right time. It just didn't. So to speak to back to what we were talking about before about sharing numbers, part of it is when you are pricing something a product that you're basically running on your own, you're looking at from, well, how much do I want to make out of this per day, per month, per year, whatever. So if you're the only person working on it, you don't have other concerns like other teammates you have to pay for or whatnot. You can be pretty lenient on pricing. You can pretty much price it wherever you want, whatever feels fair to you. You don't have to kind of add a whole lot more on top of it to pay for you know, other employees or other liabilities you may have come with running it. That makes sense. So you can be a lot more aggressive pricing-wise. You can be more competitive. Aggressive is probably a good way to put it, yeah. I mean, even though I wasn't really thinking, well, I'm going to price it as low as possible to, you know, fight these other guys. Like, no, just 19 bucks, that felt fair. 
So looking back on both HTML5 and Pixlarity, I can only kind of see them from the perspective of today, where they're these big successes. What was the process like of you know 2012, not having any of this, up through 2016? Were there any big milestones you hit? Were there any things that you changed to sort of spur growth? Or was it kind of a success right from the beginning? I mean, pretty much it was a success right from the beginning. It grew on its own. I think I owe a lot of that to just Google apparently maybe the way they changed their algorithms or something made it to where it started ranking highly very quickly. And I literally don't do SEO. Like that's not, that's just not a thing I do. I don't even really watch traffic anymore. It's just, I you know, right place, right time, I guess, which I guess is completely useless to your listeners because I'm sure they're trying to figure out, well, how do I kind of replicate something like that? And I don't know what to tell you, man. All I can say is if you don't overthink things, sometimes good things happen. Well, the entire idea behind Google's search algorithm is that it's supposed to reward the best website to give searchers what they want. So to some degree, you've kind of proven that it can work. That summarizes it just better than I could. If the intent behind their algorithms is to reward, or should I say rank, the best sites possible, so when you you search for something, you get the best possible results, then skip all the SEO ground game that you have to deal with now. Just go right to the end. Just say, well, I'm just going to make as good of a website as I possibly can. Doesn't matter how they change their algorithms. As long as you've done that, you know that's the goal they're heading towards anyway. Yeah, exactly. Except the frustrating thing is a lot of people make great stuff and no one ever finds it. I'll probably get into this later, but luck is just a huge part of all of this. And that's why I'm I'm constantly trying to stay as humble as possible because I know, I mean, I can, I mean, I've already said it. A lot of this wasn't calculated. A lot of this wasn't planned. It just kind of happened or fell in my lap. So I can't take a whole lot of credit for everything. Let's talk about some of the practicalities that were going on behind how you built these websites. Because when I think about why entrepreneurs don't do some of the things that you've done, sometimes it just comes down to mundane stuff. They don't have time to build a website. They don't have any ideas. They don't have the money. How did you fund yourself building HTML5 up and Pixlarity? Uh, so prior to all of that, I st- still had some money left over from all the work I'd been doing, you know, my old projects, which I don't even mention them anymore because it was sort of like, no, you, you remember the era of like exact match domain sites and things like that, making money off ads and all that stuff, which some people still do. But back then it was kind of what you did. Made a reasonable amount of money off that. So I ended up saving most of it, which was, turns out a really good idea. And by having that kind of foundation behind me, I didn't have to really fret too much about building something that made you know a shitload of money right away. So I could kind of take my time a bit. Did you do the same thing with Card? Because you released Pixlarity. Pixlarity, unlike HTML5 Up, was something that actually generated revenue. Was it generating enough money for you to sort of live off of it and save and fund the development of your next project? Yeah, that actually, that's exactly what happened. Pixlarity was doing well enough to where I could support myself just fine while working on this new project. And I I think having that, it's a huge blessing because when you don't have to worry so much about money, and I'm not saying, you know, I was, you know, a millionaire or anything like that, you know, and everything was taken care of. But when you don't have to worry so much about whatever you're building next, making a shitload of money right away, you can kind of take it a bit slower and build it around I guess, things that are a bit more sustainable than just like a quick cash grab, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's part of the magic of being a self-funded founder. It's that you can 
sort of pay your own way to work on whatever it is that you want. And you can move at your own pace without some other stakeholder or investor telling you that you got to move faster or telling you that you got to work on something else. One of the things that I'm always interested in is how founders get feedback from their peers and how we learn to do the things that we do. I know that you live in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is not exactly a tech hub. Who were you talking to over all these years that you were building these things and who are you learning from? Man, mostly Twitter, I think, especially in recent years. It's amazing how it doesn't matter where you are now. If you can get on Twitter and I guess connect with the group of people who are doing the same thing you are, you can very easily learn what you need to learn from them, get feedback. I mean, in the early days of Card, I think my like the very first alpha I did, it was just all people I knew on Twitter and maybe like a couple of people I knew in real life who were just friends. But yeah, that that was a huge thing for me. And I can't stress enough how much value I got out of Twitter over the last 10 or so years I've been on it. Yeah, you're one of the better Twitter users that I know. And looking at all your sites, it's it's not an accident that you have a Twitter following. If I go to HTML5 up, one of the biggest calls to action right at the top of the website is follow at AJLKN. And I think yeah. on Pixlarity, you also drive people to sort of follow you on Twitter. That actually comes from the way I handle support still to this day, where I'm, I, I think, I guess one calculated decision I did make in all of this was, I think the easiest way to provide support and probably the most value support I can give people is if I just do it directly. So putting out my Twitter handle, opening up my DMs and just saying, hey, hit me on Twitter over DM or just email me. I'll take care of it. And that turned out to be a very good decision. That doesn't get crazy for you, opening up your DMs and having everybody who uses Card, everybody who uses Pixlarity messaging you? I mean, shockingly, no. I mean, I think people need to give users credit. They're not as helpless as people would otherwise think. Like they are, especially, it depends on your product. But at least in my case, I think there's a certain level of sophistication that comes with it. So people aren't emailing me, you know, mundane questions like, how do I change a piece of text in this? HTML files. Like they already know how to do that. So it's only the really advanced, more complex things I tend to get questions about these days. Well, overall, this whole Twitter strategy is really working out for you. You've got something close to, I think, 50,000 followers on Twitter. Approaching that, I think. That's huge. That's a lot of people. And if you make use of them, you can really drive traffic to other projects that you work on. Like you were saying, your first users for card were your Twitter followers. I think some of the most oft-repeated advice for founders is to build an audience before you build your product, but you've managed to do both simultaneously. I mean, pretty much. And I think a lot of them are following either to just, because I think on that site in particular, I mentioned, you know, follow for updates. So I imagine a sizable chunk came along from just wanting to follow along and see what else is coming down the pipeline. Other people probably following just for support. So yeah, it it worked out really well because I was able to grow as I went. Give me a snapshot of this process of engaging with your audience on Twitter, opening up your DMs so that people can send you support messages. What does this actually look like in practice? Uh, Getting a tweet or a DM where someone's like, oh shit, this isn't working. What can I do? And me just replying, basically. I mean, it, it almost sounds kind of a cliche, but people really do respond well to support that treats them like a human and sounds like it's coming from a human as well. You know, so that's pretty much how I handle it. Just if a person came up to me in real life and it's like, hey, I'm having trouble with this thing, then I would respond, you know, as a person would in real life. So I figured just translate that to the online experience as well. Yeah, I've built apps in the past where I would sometimes get these support emails that would just be 
the angriest, meanest emails. And then I would respond and be an actual person. They'd be like, I'm so sorry for that first email. Like, Oh yeah, that's happened a bunch. Yeah. The people just, I think they expect to hear, you know, we are sorry you are having trouble with this product today. We will attempt to mm-hmm. help you. Let me get you to the right, you know, that kind of robotic speech, you know, a scripted experience versus what you just described where it's like, oh crap, there's an actual person here. And I sound like an asshole for yelling at them when, you know, clearly it's not entirely their fault that this is happening. So things de-escalate very quickly. And in, in the case of a solo founder or a small team running a product, you can oftentimes get things fixed very quickly because, you know, you have access to everything. So besides just doing support and talking to your audience on Twitter, I think you also do a lot of building in public. Uh, you'll tweet out pictures of unfinished designs you're working on. You'll ask questions. Uh, you've got this giant changelog tweet for a <laughs> card where you make a new tweet announcing whenever you've made a change and others will give you feedback on it. What's driving you to share what's going on behind the scenes so publicly? Well, again, I think it, it wasn't really premeditated. It was just I had noticed the feedback I got when I would do that was oftentimes very positive. You know, at the very least, you know, it was good to know people liked what I was doing. That's one part. But also getting constructive criticism for a lot of things helps me move in the right direction. And so it kind of created this feedback loop where I just kept doing it and I just really haven't stopped. Yeah, it's so great too, because like you were mentioning earlier, you've built this online support network. You don't really need people in your town to be startup founders. You don't need to move to a startup hub. You can just use Twitter and you're getting feedback from users and other founders. That's actually pretty good. And I should mention that I think you're a lot braver than I am. <laughs> I don't like to tweet behind the scenes stuff. And I sometimes wonder how your like pseudo anonymity plays into this. Since nobody knows who you are, nobody knows what you look like. Does that make it easier for you to share what you're up to online? And does that make it easier to handle criticism? I mean, I never really thought of it, but now that you bring it up, that probably factors in to an extent. I mean, it's almost as if this aspect of my life is more compartmentalized. And I think it's a little bit easier for me to handle criticism through that because I know it's only just that part of my life being criticized versus the whole thing, which I think if you're putting out your entire personality, it's hard to tell the two apart. That makes sense. Yeah, this is making me regret launching Indie Hackers under my real name. Maybe I should have had like an alias or just an invented personality that created it and I could have been a different person. How edgy. Just wish I could be you, AJ. (laughs) So let's talk about Card. The first thing I want to know is why you even created it. You had Pixelarity. That was doing well. It's presumably supporting your lifestyle. Why even start a new project? Well, I mean, why why start any new project? You want to challenge yourself. And that was especially true in my case because I had just come off a few years of doing fuck all, really. (laughs) So, I mean, HTML5 and Pixelarity and then Card, to me, it's not... There wasn't a break between those because, like I said, the years prior to that, I just kind of wasted. So I was on this kind of, I don't know, there was a lot of momentum pushing me to go to the next thing as soon as possible. And so I actually, I think I touched on this in my little making of thing that I wrote up a couple of years ago, but I needed something that took all of the skills I had learned building what ended up being a pretty diverse array of templates that you know had a lot of pretty crazy features in my view, I needed something that would take all of that and challenge me in an entire product that took advantage of all of these things, front end, back end, weird, you know, user interface stuff that I learned along the way. 
And I had a few ideas that weren't card that just seemed, you know, not really my thing. And card, that idea came from just thinking, well, what am I already kind of familiar with? And that was clearly had a lot of experience doing website design, site templates, that sort of thing. So it felt like the best first choice for a new project. Now, I didn't anticipate it turning into effectively a full-time gig like it is now. But then again, you know, who does? Tell me about some of these other ideas you were considering. What were they and why did you decide to choose card over those? Well, uh, I think I had a to-do list idea because, you know, everyone is going to have one of those. Uh, Everyone's made a to-do yes, list app. of course, because, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it Actually, it wasn't that bad of an idea just because it probably would have been a good uh, development exercise, which I think is why it uses one so often. So, shit, man, I can't remember the other ideas. I just remember thinking, no, I can't do that. Oh, no, that's stupid. Or like, I just didn't, I, I think I had a few things that were just, so far out beyond my like realm of experience that I don't think I could have done them justice. Well, I think what's interesting about card and really all of your websites that we're discussing is that you decided to do those despite the fact that you're in a pretty crowded market. Oh yeah. I think a lot of people would say, Oh, you know, a website builder. I can't do that. There's already Squarespace and Wix and a thousand other huge companies. Yeah. You know, there's a ton of competition. Why didn't you get discouraged by that fact? I think because I realized pretty quickly that that particular market, and this isn't true of all of them, but at least this particular one, is so massive. You know, there is room for pretty much any solution because everyone is going to need a website that's a little bit different from the next person. The features they need are different. What they're willing to pay will be different. So, I mean, you can really carve out an like a niche within this much larger market and not really step on anyone else's toes. I mean, you will to an extent, but you can coexist with a Squarespace, a Wix, all these other guys. How do you think people in other markets can come to the same conclusion? Because it was cool for you. You could kind of build on your skill set. I think there are other people who have skills they'd like to build on, and they're maybe not convinced that their market is so friendly to competition. How can someone look at what they're doing and come to the same conclusion that you did, that there's still room for them? I think being willing to take risks and being willing to try to do things your own way, which is a point I try to drive home quite a bit, is that you're going to fail if you try to copy one of the big guys. Because the reason why that they're able to do what they do is because they're a much larger operation than you are. You've got to think of some way to get into that market that takes advantage of what you have, which is a much smaller size, so you don't have quite as much overhead as they do. But also, you're not as big as they are, so you can focus on perhaps one small niche of what they can kind of do, but you can do better. So in my case, it was the one-page site type, which all these other guys do too. But those services are actually built more for full-on websites. So they're not going to be as into it or as, I guess, detailed about how they go about it than I would be. Yeah. Tell me about this this process of differentiating card from the other players in the space. I think it's super fascinating, like the set of decisions you make in the very early stage of your company that kind of stick with you for years. How else did you want to differentiate card from the competition and what was driving some of this differentiation that you're putting into your app? Well, I touched on it a little bit, but... uh Constraints just are, are something that comes with 
doing a project like that yourself, right? You, it's just you. So you don't have, you know, 30 developers. You can say, Hey, we're going to cover all of this ground. You have to actually look at what ground is out there to cover and then say, well, what can I do myself? That's not going to kill me because it's just me doing this. So I think by having your, your set of constraints from the get go, it kind of makes you get creative with what your product ends up looking like. So in my case, it was, well, I'm going to be doing all of it. So what can, what does, what does all of it look like for me? Well, clearly I can only go after maybe one or two niches, probably just one, quite honestly, because you can't spread yourself that thin. It has to be simple enough to where it's not going to have a huge amount of support overhead and just lots of little decisions like that. And then you end up landing on sort of a very small sliver of this otherwise gigantic market. And I think just your constraints end up defining that and then you can kind of go from there. That's such great advice because I think no matter what you're building, there's always some sort of ideal vision you have in mind of this amazing app that's going to take 100 programmers 10 years right. to build. And it's it's just hard to cut down on that and have the discipline to say, I can't realistically build that. I need to start smaller. Well, and the constraints will make you just get creative, like in any situation, not just building a product. Just you don't have, when you don't have everything at your disposal, you have to just kind of make do with what you have. And, you know, humans are pretty smart at doing that. And that's like what we're really built for. So you can really figure up something unique and special that you probably otherwise may have, you know, you may have overlooked it if you had access to, a massive, you know, massive resources, you know, whether financial or in terms of, you know, human power. People talk a lot about this concept of validating their ideas, making sure that their ideas are actually good before they invest months or years of their lives into building it. Did you do any validation for card? How did you know this would be a good idea? Uh, The validation for card was sort of, that came from HTML5 up, if I'm being honest. Uh, so I can't really, I don't want to speak to other people's experiences with that because in mine, card came from, in part, or what I saw as one of the most popular things on HTML5 up was, you know, the, the, the one page templates. So clearly there was something there. I mean, I was, you know, like the numbers of the, on the download button that you were just talking about earlier. Yeah, they're really high for one page designs. And I, up until that point, did not know that was really a thing. I just did those on a whim. So the validation to an extent came from just seeing that and saying, oh shit, a lot of people are downloading these. Maybe there's something there. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the best way to come up with a business idea is to start another business before and see what happens. Yeah. Analyze your market, see what you learn, see what right. works and what doesn't. How did you get started with Card after you first decided that you know this is a good idea, this is promising, and it's something I'm definitely going to work on? So I had to first figure out, like, do I have the skill set to build something like this? Because even though I had worked on so many templates and some other projects along the way, I didn't know if I had it in me to really pull together all of those things into one single product that needed all of it. So the first thing I did was build a very rough kind of prototype of what would later be called the generator part of card, which would take kind of the raw data from a user to build a site and then actually generate the HTML, HTML, the CSS and whatnot. And that was really like the first foray into building this thing to see if I could even do that. I did. And so then I ended up just iterating on that 
building every other layer outside it until basically I had a full working product. How long did it take to get the first early full working version of Card? Uh, let's see. I did a closed alpha, I think in October or November of 2015. And I started on it that summer. So probably about, yeah, about five, six months of kind of off and on work to get this very rough alpha out that was, I mean, arguably feature complete in, in that it it would let you log in, build a site and publish it. So yeah, about six months. One idea that I've been obsessed with lately is the power of analogy and how important it is to really think about the analogies that you're using to describe whatever task is in front of you. So for example, a lot of people talk about launching your startup. Well, if you start to think of your startup as something that's analogous to rocket launches, you're probably going to spend all of your time building and tankering up front. And then you're going to invest all of your marketing effort into this one single moment in time and then expect it to sort of carry itself from there. Oh, for some reason I heard rocket launcher and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a thing? Have I just been out of the startup loop for so long? There's a new concept, the rocket launcher. Come thing. on, AJ, catch up. Yeah. Another analogy that a lot of people tend to use is that of inventions. So if you think of your startup as analogous to inventing something, you're probably going to put a whole lot of weight behind the idea and building it. You're probably going to keep your idea secret and I want to tell anybody. Right. And you're going to undervalue sort of the subsequent execution, finding users, etc. I'm curious what analogies you use, AJ. How do you envision the whole journey of a startup in your mind? Huh. I actually kept a lid on it for at least the first... Yeah, the first six months until I did the alpha. I mean, it didn't even have a name. I only emailed, I mean, less than a dozen people about it. I avoided talking about it on Twitter. I think I may have teased one or two things along the way, but I don't know. I would I, I would hesitate to call it an invention because it's not really anything that revolutionary or innovative in that regard. But I think part of it was, and this goes a little bit back to when you're building in public to an extent, you're kind of a little bit nervous to share too much about something before it is really viable. You know, like you just, is this thing going to suck? If it is, I don't really want to share, <laughs> you know, my, right. where I'm at 10%, you know, I'd rather just keep a lid on it until it feels like it's time to start telling people about it. Did you have a roadmap, sort of a predictive roadmap of what things we're going to look like in the future, like a next date, I'm going to launch a card. And then next year, I'm going to go to step two. And then there's going to be a phase three. Or are you just sort of uh, winging it, you know, one week, one day at a time? Uh, early days, for sure, I was winging it. I just wanted to get the product out the door and see where it would end up. Recently, though, especially in the last year, because things have just grown to the point where, you know, you need more planning. I've done more planning, done a bit more. I have a bit more formal of a roadmap now. But there is still an ex like to some extent there is still just winging it. You know, if something comes up out of nowhere that I didn't anticipate, but it seems like it would be a good thing to add and it makes sense, then I will actually oftentimes prioritize doing that over maybe what else I had planned at the time. I do the same thing. There's this I think it's called recency bias, where whatever things you've heard recently seem to stick in your mind and like really just take up the most mind share. And so it's really easy for me if a good idea pops into my head or somebody suggests it to end up prioritizing that over some of my more long-term plans. Right, which can be which can be dangerous for sure. Like otherwise you just end up totally. tacking stuff on in kind of a haphazard unplanned way, you know, completely uh foregoing whatever proper planning you did before. I mean, there's 
there's, I mean, but there's also still value in being flexible enough to incorporate new things out of nowhere, you know? Like, one of Card's biggest mm-hmm. features is this, the uh, custom form, payment-enabled form thing, which literally I had no plans for, and it came out of a conversation with uh, Peter Levels, just on a whim. And, like, right after, I was like, shit, I'm going to do this. And so, like, immediately I started working on it. I don't even remember what I was supposed to be working on at the time. I just started working on that. And it turned out to be a huge, huge thing. So nowadays you're getting something crazy, like 20,000 new users per month joining Card. Yeah, but you mentioned that in the early days, you were just reaching out to people on Twitter. You were talking to your friends in real life. How many users exactly were you finding through efforts like this? And what did that process look like? Uh, well, prior to launch, I would say, I mean, just less than a dozen people because that's who I emailed. I think around early 2016 is when I started announcing publicly on Twitter that I have a new thing. I'm doing kind of an open beta. So if you're interested in trying it out, DM me or email me and I'll give you the details. And so I probably got a few dozen more that way because I didn't really publicly share a lot of information about what this thing was until people reached out to me because I still at that time, you know, still kind of wanted to keep a lid on it for whatever reason. After launching, I mean, it's been a while since I looked at this, but probably I started getting a decent number of new users from just that on Twitter. And then the Product Hunt launch kind of just blasted the crap out of all of that because that's what Product Hunt tends to do. But yeah, it was no, it, certainly nowhere near what I'm getting today, but it was, it was pretty good just on Twitter alone. Let's say your launch didn't go very well or your Twitter advertising sort of petered out. Did you have any sort of growth roadmap or marketing strategy that you planned on following after that? Nope. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that was definitely the time when I was winging it a lot. So I was just like, well, whatever happens, happens. You know, I, to an extent, I had already gotten what I wanted out of the product in terms of, you know, I learned a ton along the way. I felt like I had leveled up a lot during the development process. And so if it didn't go well, or if it just, it petered out. It's like, well, it's not costing me a whole lot to keep it around. So it's not going to hurt just to keep it there and move on to something else. That's such a cool mindset to have because it makes you more optimistic about what you're building. If you know that you're going to be gaining all sorts of things from your product, even if it doesn't succeed, if you know that you're going to be picking up new skills and learning things or meeting people or whatever you consider valuable, then yeah, it doesn't really matter if it succeeds or not. And so you can still move forward without sort of this paralyzing anxiety about success. Right. And for card as well. I mean, at the very least, I was like, you know, I'm going to, when I was done with it and it launched on Twitter, like way back in early 2016, I was like, yeah, maybe, you know, if it doesn't turn into like a commercially viable product at the very least, it's a very cool like portfolio piece. If I need to get another gig or something, I can just point to that and say, Hey, I built this on my own. So, you know, that it would have helped at least on that level. What was your business model like in the early days and how has it changed since then? Uh, The business model hasn't changed a whole lot, but I did make one very good decision early on. And that was to first make it a free product because there's a lot of debate as to whether you should go freemium or not. And I think for something like Card, I felt that either I invest a whole lot in marketing and like demo videos and all kinds of shit just to show people what the product can do. Or fuck it, I'll just let people use it for free and then make it to where the really cool stuff is behind a sort of paywall. So it launched with the free plan that anyone can get just by going to the website. 
and then a pro plan, which was, you know, 19 bucks a year that gave you custom domains, forms. And I think, I mean, honestly, not a ton more beyond that when it first launched. I mean, I added a bunch more to it later, but not, yeah, I think it only launched with those two key features, really. That's a good combination to launch with free and paid plans. Most of the founders I talk to who are doing things that are free, it's really because they're afraid to charge. So they launch and day one, they've got a free plan, but there is no there is no paid plan. And they say, oh yeah, one day I'll get to it as, as long as I can make my free users happy. How did you decide to launch with your paid plan? Well, I knew if I was going to launch on Product Hunt, I didn't want to waste that initial surge, which I had seen with so many other products where you just get this huge wave of new users and and attention really for it to only have a free plan. I felt like I would be missing out on some potential conversions. And also that's a good way to kind of get a sense of, is this a good product beyond it just being free? Like would people actually want to pay for it? And so by launching with both at the same time, I was able to validate that very quickly. And in my case it was, Oh yeah, people are willing to pay for this thing. So that's, that is really great and extremely motivating, quite honestly. Yeah, that's smart. You're treating your launch as not just a way to get a bunch of users in the door, but also as an experiment, really, to test your hypotheses, to test if people will pay for what you're doing. Right. I mean, if anything, people were complaining about it being too cheap. But I was like, well, okay, I'll take that, you know, over people complaining that it's too expensive. It's a good problem to have. Yeah. So on that note, I want to point out that Card violates a lot of the advice that I find myself giving to founders. I tell people, for example, to charge a lot of money for what they're building, but you sell a card for cheap. I think it's the lowest plan is like 10 bucks a year or something. Yeah. It's like, uh, there's an entry level pro light plan for nine bucks a year, but you know, I can get into that a bit later. Super cheap. Yeah. Uh, I tell founders to charge everybody. I was just tweeting about this the other day. I think you responded to it, but I don't like freemium. I don't like giving away your product for free, but right. with card, you have tens of thousands of people signing up every month who never convert to paying users. I tell people, not to build products for consumers, to target businesses instead. But the vast majority of your customers are just regular people. And none of this seems to matter. You're killing it anyway. In your opinion, what's going on here? Is my advice just bad? Is card a special case? I would say your advice is good, generally speaking. And I have to I have to stress that card is a special case, just as every product is. You can't look at card and say, well, this is the way to do it. I'm only sharing my personal experiences with this stuff and that's all I can really speak to. So what works for me is not necessarily going to work for anyone listening. That being said, I think being dogmatic about how to do things is a good way to kind of box yourself in and not take you know, different, different approaches or even just risks that may end up panning out. So in the case of card, for instance... There's a an aspect to it that I would say, yeah, I winged it. I certainly winged it. I probably could have done things a little bit different, but it ended up panning out because I was willing to just kind of take those risks going in and not be held back by, well, all the startup advice I've seen tells me to do otherwise. So let's dive into some of the specific ways that card is unique. The first thing we already touched on is pricing. You have pricing plans that go as low as $9 a year. What is it about Card that makes this a good decision? Well, uh, Card initially launched with just that single $19 a year plan because that felt like a good starting point. But as time went on, it became clear that there are just so many different types of people using it. And I figured it being a freemium product, I should 
come up with a way to incentivize converting those free users over to paid. I mean, that's that's obvious. So in the case of like that $9 a year plan, I noticed uh, maybe about, it's been maybe like a year and a half, maybe two years even, a certain demographic of users began using card, as you well know, K-pop aficionados, among others. Again, a use case I didn't anticipate, but still pretty cool. Those users would probably never pay for the features on a regular pro plan because those features are more business-oriented. Custom domain, forms, Google Analytics, that type of stuff. So I needed a plan that had features that they would actually want to pay for and also price it in such a way that they would almost, on a whim, upgrade to that plan because it's so cheap. Because I figured, look, it's either a decision between that, getting something out of them, or getting nothing out of them. So by adding this plan, I actually ended up converting quite a few of them. Maybe not all. I mean, it's not a huge percentage. But at least now I'm actually converting some of those users who would have otherwise just been free users. Let's say you could go back in time to the early days of Card and give yourself some advice around some of these major decisions you made about pricing and product design and the architecture of your code, et cetera. Is there anything that you would tell yourself to change? Well, first, I think it would be have a little bit more faith that this thing is going to do well, which I, I guess it's hard to really, <laughs> you know, that advice doesn't always apply because, you know, it could have very well not gone well. But I would have made some better code decisions. It's not to say what I have right now is not, I can't work with. I mean, it's certainly, it's fine, but there are aspects to it where had I seen where things were going way back when I started, I probably would have structured things just a little bit differently to make my life a bit easier now. But I mean, that it's not, not that big of a deal. Beyond that, I'd say maybe, actually, I can't really think of anything else. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that I got everything perfect. I mean, it's, it's uh, almost as if I just kind of lucked into the right setup to handle the scale that I have now. Now that could very well change in a few years, maybe even sooner. But as it stands right now, I think between my own like good decisions and just straight up luck, there's not a whole lot that needs to have been changed. Card is one of the few truly viral products that I've seen. It feels like you know one out of a hundred products actually of real virality. If I search Google for website builder, card doesn't come up, and yet you're getting tons of new signups, tons of traffic, and people seem to be finding you primarily through just spreading the product through word of mouth. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'd say that's very accurate. How much time do you spend doing marketing and growth stuff for card deliberately? Uh, zero, I'd say. I mean, unless you count my tweets on Twitter and then these, you know, the occasional podcasts that I do. I mean, I really don't put any effort into marketing. Again, it doesn't apply to every type of product or every product period, but I don't know. Something about card, I guess, just makes it spread on its own, at least right now. That's every programmer's dream to sit around building their product all day and not have to talk to anyone to do any marketing whatsoever. Oh, I, I'm, believe me. Yeah, I, I can absolutely relate, but I can't, I can't sit here and say, well, I designed it to be viral. You know, it's like, <laughs> no way, man. It just kind of happened in my case. Well, what do you think is the secret here? How do you think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight that you build something that spreads via word of mouth? I would say first it being free because the barriers entry is pretty much eliminated at that point. 
people aren't having to hand over a credit card to use it, that sort of thing. Second thing would be, and actually this was a conscious decision, the uh, process to get into building the site, like to try out card, like if you've never used it before and you just want to give it a go, you literally just click a button. You don't have to give an email. You don't have to do anything. You just click the, well, actually, I think you have to do two clicks. You, you, you click the button, then you choose a template you want, and then you just go right into it. No sign up required. And that turned out to be a hugely beneficial decision, especially going back to the product hunt launch. That became extremely effective because of this one decision I made where people like the, there's like no reason where you can't just accidentally build a website with card because you were just clicking around and you'll end up building something. You don't have to type anything. So that was probably a big part of it. And I think just, I mean, I really deliberately tried to keep cards, copy, marketing, whatever you want to call it, as not marketing-ish at all, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm in here right now messing around with card. You said it would take one or two clicks to get started, and you're right. I'm already setting up a website. And I got to say, man, your design is slick. You've got a rare combination of design sensibilities, front-end programming skills, and back-end programming skills. How does someone acquire that entire well-rounded skill set? Oh man, uh, it's it's actually not really a big secret. It's just just try it, just do it. I mean, I think people are are more capable of doing things than they give themselves credits for, and I think part of that comes from just this desire to kind of pigeonhole yourself. You want to give yourself a label like, "Well, I'm a developer." So if you see any problem that requires even a modicum of design effort, you're just like, "Well." That's not my thing. I'm a developer. And I think it's like, well, you know, maybe actually you may be okay at design. You may be good enough at design to actually solve that problem. So why not give it a go? That doesn't mean, you know, become a designer in all this, but just just try it. And the same goes for designers. They, I mean, you're, you're a human, you're smart, <laughs> you know, you can solve problems. There's no reason you can't apply that aspect of it to solving maybe a backend development problem. It's cool looking at your growth strategy being, you know, zero minutes a day invested into marketing. But the reality is that you're sort of doing marketing by engineering. Like you said, having it be so easy to sign up for the product or keeping it free, like your product choices make your product more viral. How do you think the aesthetics come into it? The fact that creating a card is such a pleasant experience and that the card that you create looks so good. What do you find your users talking about when they're spreading this product to each other via word of mouth? I mean, you pretty much summed it up right there. Uh, they're just pleased with what they can make with very little effort. And I think that, yeah, that is what spreads it. And again, card is a unique case for many reasons. And I think that's one aspect is that you're creating something visual. So it's very easy to spread something like that because you can make something and say, hey, I made this thing. And then someone can look at it and immediately say, oh, wow, that looks cool. I want to make a thing like that too. For other products that are a bit more technically oriented or you know just like okay Airtable. Airtable is freaking amazing but it's a little bit hard to spread it virally in the same way that card can go because you know you're spreading you're showing a basically what's a spreadsheet to someone you know that's not as unless that person already kind of has a need for something like that or familiarity they're gonna be like i'm looking at a spreadsheet you know what i mean you're right there's just something about what it is that you're building. It's a website. If you build a website, it's kind of like the point of it is to show other people. Probably very few people build a website just for themselves. And so 
It's kind of like making a, a greeting card company or something. If you're selling greeting cards, you can be pretty sure that your customers are going to share the card with someone else because that's what you do with greeting cards. Right. Do you do anything on top of that? Do you have any incentives? Like, hey, invite a friend and we'll give you $5 off or something like that. Well, as it stands, just the natural virality. But I mean, that suggestion you just made there, that's definitely been suggested by other people that I should do something that effect or at the very least like a referral or affiliate program or something. Uh, definitely good ideas. It's just, I haven't really had a need to do that just yet. And I'm not, you know, dismissing it like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm growing so well, I don't need that. Right now, because it's growing pretty well on its own, that's given me a lot of free time to work on the product itself. You know, so to go back to how I spend no time on marketing, well, by not spending any time on marketing, guess what I can spend that time on? Actual features for the product and enhance it that way. Let's talk about that because a lot of us are building products and especially in your case where you've got so many users, so many people giving you suggestions and so much surface area because what you're building is so general. I bet you've got a feature list of like a million and one ideas for things you can build at a card. (laughs) How do you decide what to work on next? And do you consider yourself more of a a long-term planner or sort of a strategic prioritizer or how do you, how do you figure this all out? So short-term stuff, uh, I get a lot of people who have suggestions to make small enhancements to things. And when those come in, I'll look at it and think, well, is this, how much time am I going to end up spending on implementing it? Like, for, well, first, it has to pass the filter. Is this a good idea for card or not? If it is, I look at it and think, well, is this something that will take a few minutes to implement, a few hours, a few days, or a few weeks? More often than not, the stuff that just takes a few minutes or a few hours will be prioritized because especially if more than one person suggested this, clearly there's, you know, if, if it ha- if two completely different people in a short amount of time suggest the same thing and it's a relatively small feature to add, well, then it makes sense to go ahead and add it because there are probably people who are looking for that but don't think to ask for it. So I'll prioritize those things. Other things though, beyond that, more major stuff, I end up putting into sort of a kind of just a general, I basically have a text file just full of major ideas. And those are things that I'm not quite sure at what point I'm going to work on them, but they were good enough ideas to where I know at some point those need to make it into the product in some form or fashion. Probably the most often repeated tip for startup founders is to talk to your customers regularly and it sounds like that's something that you've done a lot of with Card. Yeah. What does this process look like? How do you get in touch with your customers? And have they ever significantly changed the direction that you're headed in? Well, interestingly, I mean, this goes back to the way I handle support for even HTML5 up and Pixelarity. It was, I guess, by keeping that communication channel open and making sure people knew, yeah, you're talking to the person who made this thing. It makes it easier for them, you know, even as they're asking, requesting support or something to just get in touch when they're like, hey, I have this idea for this thing. You know, they're not having to go through many levels of bureaucracy to get to me. They just shoot me an email and there it is. So I don't really have to go out and really seek input. I get a lot of feedback just as the, you know, just from people getting in touch with me every day. And one of the things that I struggle with with indie hackers is that I have this platform that I'm creating and there's this, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe it's like a sort of, it's like a fine line you walk between being prescriptive about what features to build into your product 
and also keeping things open-ended so that users can sort of surprise you. That's something that you deal with with Card as well. You have all sorts of people building cool websites that you never would have imagined, but at the same time, you're coding up a very limited set of tools that they have at their disposal to create these websites with. How do you think about sort of enabling your users to be creative and do you know, whatever it is that they want while also making sure that the sites that they create sort of fit in with your goals and your design aesthetic and what you think they need to be doing? And that's an excellent question because there is always that possibility where if you're too open and you just kind of go with what your users want, you'll end up with this crazy mess of, you know, it would be like an incoherent mess of features that don't really fit together. You'll have niche features for very specific people who will never like, but don't, don't really have general usage beyond that specific niche. So yeah, it's, it's a great question because the way I handle it is anytime a someone requests a like they, they suggest a feature or something to that effect, I'll always look at it in the context of that's great. How does this fit into the overall picture of what card is? And will other people beyond just this particular person's use case actually get use out of it? And if it doesn't pass that test, then more often than not, I won't come back to it just because I don't want to start adding on hyper-specific features for hyper-specific niches because that's just going to clutter the product and make it, I think, less usable overall. It's fascinating because I had Des Trainer, um, sort of the chief strategist for Entercom on the podcast on last year, and I asked him how they prioritize features at Entercom. And they have this whole framework called RICE. It stands for like reach, impact, um, I think, confidence, and effort. Wow. And it sounds like you are pretty much doing that exact same thing without having a fancy name for it. I mean, you think about the E, the effort part of it. You're prioritizing things that are much quicker to do versus doing things that take a long time to do. So you get a lot more features out the door. Or the reach, like you're consciously thinking about how many of my users will actually use this feature. I don't want to build something that only 5 or 10% of people are going to experience. And all of this sounds, I think, obvious in hindsight, but your intuition often as a founder is not to do either one of these things. Right. That is really interesting that like there's a formal term they have for it because I mean, that does sound exactly what I'm doing, but uh, yeah, a good part of it is intuition. And I think if you just, I think overthinking this stuff in advance, I think you'll end up missing the boat to an extent. Like if you are, if you just dive into it and you start working on the product and you start interacting with your customers, a lot of this stuff will just become apparent as you go. I mean, I I realized that right off the bat when I started getting people requesting features that are like, this would basically require me to rewrite the entire product in a different way. I'm not doing that. You know, and that was just, you know, it wasn't, I didn't run it through that acronym. I just basically thought, well, no, this, there's no way I'm doing that. I don't, I only have so many hours in the day where I can work on this thing. I'm not doing that. But then I'll get someone email me a little bit later saying, Hey, do you think you could add this tiny little thing? And I'm like, well, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go ahead and do that right now purely intuition. And I think everyone has this once they put themselves in that situation. We've talked a lot about your wins here with Card. We're talking about all the things that have gone right. Let's talk a little bit about mistakes. What are some lessons that you've learned from things that perhaps didn't go so well while you were running Card? I'd say the biggest thing when you're dealing with a, I would say a consumer-oriented product, and I didn't expect Card to be this way, but it is what it is. 
uh, you have a lot of user content and you've got to basically moderate that stuff because who knows what crazy shit may end up on there. And, you know, luckily we really haven't had anything really untoward be put up on the platform, but man, yeah, content moderation is definitely a thing you have to deal with when you're dealing with a platform like this. And I think if I had, I mean, to go back to the previous question you asked, if there's anything I could have told myself back when I first started, I would have told myself, be ready for this and maybe have a system in place right away that you can use as opposed to something that you have to kind of very quickly implement and iterate on in a short amount of time to get up to speed, which is pretty much what happened when cards launched on Product Hunt. Up until then, I was getting maybe a dozen new sites a day at most. And then it got on Product Hunt and I was up in the hundreds. <laughs> and that's like a shit ton more content. And nothing shady ended up on there, but I was like, well, I can see where this could go though, with this many people adding sites. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to have to look at these and make sure, you know, people aren't posting porn or something, which, you know, we don't allow on the platform. How are we going to do that? And for a while there, I didn't have a good solution in place because I just didn't really think of that. And as part of, I guess, just, you know, growing pains with, with a platform like this, you just don't know what you're going you're gonna to get with user content. What is the solution to that problem? Because with so many people creating tens of thousands of sites per month, I mean, this is not something you can handle by hand. Right. Uh, so part of it is automation. And that's actually been the thing that I implemented maybe over the last nine months that's really made a huge positive impact on it. And also uh, having an interface in there for manual moderation as well for stuff that you know the automated systems just can't kind of figure out on its own. So my business partner who I worked with on other stuff before used to not really be involved in card, but then when moderation became something I couldn't handle on my own, he had to come in and start handling it. So I built, with his feedback, I actually built a good interface where he can quickly go through what sites are remaining in the moderation queue that the automation could take care of itself. So I wouldn't say that's something that went bad. It was definitely something that could have been better early on, though. That's cool that you have a business partner. I had no idea. And I, I've been meaning to ask you, actually, what it's like to be building something this big with this many people using it on your own and whether or not you ever feel tempted to bring in some outside help. Is anyone else helping you besides your business partner? And what other things do you do to sort of scale your own effectiveness so you can handle running such a huge operation? Well, uh, to answer the first part of that question, no one else. Uh, he actually came in to do the moderation angle of things when that just when I was doing that myself and then also working on the product and when I started spending like a couple of hours a day doing moderation I was like "Uh, no fuck this I'm not doing this so I handed it off to him he took care of it for a while but then it started getting even beyond like the couple of hour range into like three four hours and at that point I was like all right we need a solution that scales well then to answer the second part of that question how do I scale up with it well a huge part of it is automation Because you'll find in even a product like Card, there are lots of little things that early on you do manually just out of habit. Like you don't even think about it. But then as things grow and you get more users and more content, you start seeing the repetitive things that you end up doing every day that just take up time that could otherwise be, in many cases, automated. So yeah, scaling automation is 100% key, especially if it's just you working on this thing. Or even in my case, where I have a business partner 
handling content moderation. I mean, I don't want him spending 18 hours a day moderating content because that's just not cool. So automation even helps if you have more than one person working on something. And that can take you really far, I think. You seem to have a bias in favor of automation. And I've talked to lots of people who have a bias the other way around. They prefer to hire. They hire small armies of contractors who are working overseas or working on Upwork. How do you feel about that path? And have you hired any contractors in the past? Um, Not as of yet, which is part of why I'm going the automation route. Because my thinking is, if I can automate what I can, then the stuff that I can't automate, I can hire out. And at that point where I'm hiring in people to do stuff, I know I've done my absolute best to automate whatever I could before I try to go the route of spending money on people, if that makes sense. We've talked about your early ambitions with Card. It started off as sort of a side project. You weren't sure where it was going to go. Today, you've got hundreds of thousands of users. You're making close to $30,000 a month. How have your goals and your vision changed for what you want this to be? And what what keeps you motivated to keep working on this rather than starting something new? Well, the the kind of the adventure every day of just seeing where the product goes, which I touched on a little bit before, but yeah, every day people are just using it in different ways. And that's just, I don't know, something cool about when you make something and then other people are using it and getting value out of it. And then going on like, uh, so there are people using card now at like an agency level where they're building websites for clients. And I was like, I never expected people to use it that way, but it's so awesome that they're using card to power part of their business. So, you know, they can move forward and that's just, that's just really cool to me. So things like that really keep me going on the, on the project. And as far as where I see it going though, yeah, there's so many like major features. I mentioned that text file I have where I have major things written down that I'm not sure when I'll get to it, but I'd like to get to it. One of the big things right now that I'm thinking about is taking a whack at commerce and seeing how I can do that in a card sort of way. Who knows what they'll end up looking like, but it sounds like you know just a natural challenge to add even more value to the platform, but also just more value that users can get out of it. I think some people say that a business is something that should be done for the sake of growth, that every business needs to grow. Some people say that every business needs to generate revenue. You need to grow your revenue. Some people say that a business is meant just to provide a nice lifestyle for the founders, the employees, or the customers. What is the point of a card for you? And you know, you're saying you want to add these new features, e-commerce. What direction do you want to head in? Hmm, I think I think a, so part of that I think is dictated by how you start. So if you are if you're taking funding, I think that dictates kind of your the terms of how you run the product. So, you know, if you're taking funding, you have an incentive to get your revenue going, grow as quickly as possible, that sort of thing. If you're doing it yourself and you're self-funding it, you have a little bit more freedom in that. And so you can kind of take it slowly. You can choose not to grow. You can grow it like a manual, manageable pace, like a kind of like what I'm doing. Uh, you have just more options available to you. Uh, for me though, right now, card is more of just, it's just a thing that I do. Uh, it's, it's gone to where it is my full-time job, which I didn't anticipate 
even two years ago when it was still kind of at that side project phase. And I'm, I'm enjoying it and I'm going to keep doing it as long as people want to use it. And as long as I still have ideas I can put into it. Well, I've taken up more than enough of your time, AJ. There's so many more questions I could ask you, but it's been like an hour and a half at this point. I will will end by asking you to give advice to people who are listening in, who are maybe just starting their first project, just starting their first company, or even just trying to decide what to work on. What do you think these people should know? What do you think they can learn from the lessons that you've learned? If you're just starting out, if you haven't first, if you haven't even figured out what you want to do, then the advice I give everybody for that is just pick something that seems like it'd be fun for you. Like it doesn't have to be a world changing product or something or something that's going to sell for like billions of dollars. Just find something in your life that interests you and then build a small product around it that solves a problem or makes something better or whatever, you know, as long as it's fun and keeps you interested. And I think that's always the best way to start because especially if you've never done it before, that gives you the motivation to kind of move to the next level because then you realize, wow, I can do this. You know, this is something that I'm capable of doing. Cool. I love that advice. And I think you've embodied it yourself because you've always stayed around this niche of products that you really enjoy doing yourself. Anyway, thanks AJ so much for coming onto the podcast. Can you let listeners know where they can go online to find out more about what you're up to and where they can find card? Sure. Uh, easiest place is just Twitter at uh, AJLKN. Uh, that's where I'm usually just yakking about the stuff I'm doing. Uh, and then, of course, card, card with two R's, dot CO. And that's about it. Uh, Cortland, thanks for having me on, man. I was This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Going to have to get you and maybe Peter Levels on at the same time sometime. Uh, yes. The, uh, the thing we've been talking about for a while. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. We should totally do that. Yeah. Someday. All right, AJ, I'll let you go. All right. Have a good day. Take it easy, Corlin. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.